among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open the Word of God this morning, let's make sure we're prepared to study it under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, through the use of 1 John 1, 9. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word because of its clarity because of its lucidity and perspicacity, because it tells us who we are, what we are like, how to have a relationship with you, and how we can advance to spiritual maturity. Now, Father, as we continue to study the life of our Lord when he was on earth in the incarnation, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things that he was teaching, the the way it applies to our own life, and may we be challenged by these things to advance in our spiritual growth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and we continue our study of Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders and the crowd during the Feast of the Tabernacles. This passage is quite a challenge to us because, as we have seen in our study of John before, the Apostle John writes at different levels of meaning. There are layers of interpretation within the text. Now, that is not to say that the literal meaning of the text is not important. It is. But the way John, as an author, crafts his telling of the story and the events that he brings in, he's making different points. And he may use a word that has two different meanings, and he intends both. He may present a situation... And then the way he tells it, he uses irony in order to not only emphasize the literal event, but also to bring in a second level of meaning, which he also wants to emphasize. And this passage is one which is loaded with irony. Now, we have to remember the setting of the passage. It is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is roughly equivalent in terms of the calendar to early December in our calendar. It is the last of the fall festivals, and its significance is that it is a foreshadowing of the Messiah coming in his kingdom. And suddenly, in the middle of this week, this is a week-long festival. It lasted seven days. It was the third of the annual pilgrimage festivals. There were three. There's the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's Pentecost, and there is Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which required all adult Jewish males to come to Jerusalem to sacrifice at the temple. So the streets are crowded, the temple courtyard is packed with tens of thousands of worshipers, and it has been this way throughout the week. And we're going to see just exactly what this week would have been like as we go through this study. It's a fascinating uh, study. And suddenly, in the middle of this week, Jesus appears in the temple, and we saw that this indeed is, in fa- is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that the Messiah would come suddenly into the temple, and he appears and in, the, in the midst of a, of a crowd that's already stirred up. They're arguing about Jesus. The uh, uh, leaders, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin has sent out spies into the crowd to find out what people are saying about Jesus, to find out if he is there and where he is, and they... Their intent is to arrest him because they have already decided from, from all, over a year before that they were going to uh, arrest him and that they were going to take his life and execute him. So Jesus appears suddenly and confronts the mob with their negative volition and with his claims to being the Messiah. And we have seen that there are some in the crowd that are accepting what he is saying. They are believing in him. But most are rejecting him, and this results in a division in the multitude. And remember, the issue at gospel hearing is positive volition. There are two stages in a person's life when positive volition becomes crucial. The first 
is positive volition at God consciousness. Now, you can't make, take an absolute date on God consciousness, but from the time of birth until anywhere from two years of age, I think, all the way up to 20, I think the more primitive the culture, the longer it takes, somewhere between 2 and 20, a person becomes aware that there is something greater than themselves. They go through three stages. First of all, they go through a stage of self-consciousness where they become aware of who they are and that they are distinct and have a distinct identity. Then they become aware of the existence of others and there's an others consciousness. And then finally, there's an awareness that there must be something greater, God consciousness. And at this point, they become culpable for their volition. They can either choose positively or negatively. They can desire to know more about God or they can reject God. Now, positive volition is not necessarily exemplified in being religious. In fact, there is a lot of negative volition that is portrayed as religious activity. Idolatry is negative volition to God, but positive volition towards idols. The Pharisees were clearly negative to God. That's the point that Jesus is making in verse 17 of this chapter. We saw this last time. He said, if any man is willing to do his will. And there Jesus is emphasizing the priority of volition. And he is, in fact, almost slapping the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the face because they are not willing to listen to him and to understand his teaching. So he is saying, basically, you're really negative. You do not want to have anything to do with God. In fact, in spite of all your religious activity, you are negative to God. So, Negative volition is not necessarily exemplified in hostility to God, but it can be covered up with a lot of religious activity. Positive volition, on the other hand, at God consciousness, can be covered up over the years by a lot of uh, negative volition. But ultimately, God will make the gospel clear and that person will, will respond. Now, this is clearly exemplified in the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul trusted Christ as his Savior on the Damascus Road. That tells us that the basic orientation of the Apostle Paul's soul was positive to truth, positive to God. Yet, that had been covered up with a lot of scar tissue and religious activity to the point that he spent several years persecuting believers. He heard the gospel from the lips of Stephen. We're the, our first glimpse of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul's uh, Hebrew name, he is standing at the edge of the crowd as they stone Stephen. He hears the gospel from the lips of Stephen, yet he is in support of the, which was a violation of their law, of stoning Stephen, and he continues to persecute the church. Yet eventually God, if you are positive, God is going to Prepare the soil properly and he will make the gospel clear and that person will end up hearing the gospel and have the opportunity to be positive at gospel hearing. So the situation we have here is they, Jesus is accusing them of negative volition, not only negative volition at God consciousness, but negative volition at gospel hearing. They are caught up in, their, in the arrogance of religion. And because they're caught up in arrogance, when somebody came along and taught something different from their traditions, they are reacting in anger and hostility. So when Jesus came along and healed a man on the Sabbath in violation of their religious traditions, they reacted in anger, and we were told back there in John chapter 5 that they determined at that point to kill him. But Jesus uses a very sophisticated argument here in John chapter 7, which we looked at last time, in order to show their hypocritical devotion to the Mosaic law. He's making it clear that you don't really obey even the Mosaic law because Moses made an exception as far as the Sabbath was concerned. On the Sabbath, all the Mosaic law said was you're not supposed to work, and the Pharisees would come along and added all kinds of conditions to that, just exactly what does it mean to work. But Moses clearly allowed for circumcision to take place on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, said, if it's okay 
to take one member of the body and make it healthier than what I did on the Sabbath was to make the entire man healthy, was to heal him from his uh, crippling affliction, and yet you react to that. That's inconsistent. You don't even understand Moses. You don't understand the law. Now, these were clearly fighting words for the Pharisees. Jesus is not only not backing off from the confrontation. We saw earlier that Jesus did indeed control the confrontations. He didn't just run around like a loose cannon trying to start a conflict with the Pharisees every time one of them showed up. He was very careful in the way he handled the situation. But here he is clearly stirring the pot. He is going to uh, aggravate the entire situation, but not for the sake of causing conflict but for the sake of showing for all time and eternity that the Jewish religious leaders had every evidence in the world presented to them that he was the Messiah, and they rejected it. We see this down in verse 30. After he has confronted them in the previous verses, it intensified their desire to arrest him. Verse 30, they were seeking, therefore, to arrest him, literally, and no man laid his hand on him. This is the sovereignty of God protecting the Lord Jesus Christ in hypostatic union because his hour had not yet come. And this is always a phrase in reference to the crucifixion. Verse 31 tells us that there were those who believed, but many of the multitude believed in him. Now this is what the believers were saying. When the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Now why does... John insert this to let us know that Jesus has clearly demonstrated who he is. He has provided more than enough evidence and there were clearly many who did respond positively. So the issue is not lack of evidence. The issue is not lack of clarity. If there's enough evidence for one to believe, there was enough for everyone to believe. So John wants us to understand very clearly that there is more than enough evidence available to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah promised from the Old Testament. But the Pharisees are caught up in the, their human viewpoint, religious assumptions, and so they react. And we see the escalation of the conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities beginning in verse 22. The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So the scenario is that in the midst of the feast, Jesus has challenged their very thinking. And Jesus came along, let me find the correct overhead here, and has appeared in the midst of the temple. And here's a rough schematic of what the temple looked like. There's the outer wall. Here's the temple proper here. And out here in the court of the Gentiles, where it was just probably shoulder-to-shoulder people, Jesus has been standing out, and the text used the word crying. It means to shout out loud. Jesus is, has raised his voice, and he is proclaiming his message to make sure everyone hears him. Now, he didn't have benefit of a PA system, but we know that... In his humanity, he probably had a great set of lungs. So much so that everybody there could hear what he was saying. Back during what was called the First Great Awakening in America, which was a religious revival, a true religious revival, that swept the colonies in the 1740s, one of the prominent speakers at that time, evangelists at that time, was a barrel-chested Englishman by the name of George Whitfield. And George Whitfield made the acquaintance of Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin was, as, in, as a scientist, always curious about different things, including sound and the travel of sound. And uh, Franklin went out to one of Whitfield's evangelistic services and stood at the edge of the crowd and walked all the way around to see how well he could hear, how well sound traveled. And he estimated the size of the crowd at over 20,000. And yet Whitfield's voice carried clearly and loudly to all areas of the crowd. So that's just one example. Without benefit, 
of electronic age. So that's just one way in which one individual in history could proclaim and shout with a very loud voice. So the Lord could at least do that well. So even though there were thousands here, they all heard what he was saying. And so the Pharisees got back in one of the porticos here, and they gathered together and mumbled and conspired among themselves and said, we've got to do something about this guy now. He's stirring up the crowd. He's causing a lot of aggravation out here. People are beginning to get emotional and excited. And we've got to stop it right now, so we've got to arrest him. So they sent out some officers to seize him. And literally this means to arrest him. Now I want you to notice the scene. Jesus knows what's happening. He knows what's going on behind the scenes. And he knows that there are officers in the crowd whose mission is to arrest him. But he doesn't let that stop him. He continues to instruct the crowd. Verse 33. Jesus says, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. Now, in the midst of this confrontation, we realize that that what we have here is the Logos of God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has presented clear claims to who he is. And he has taught clearly and lucidly to the people. You see, some people get the idea that God's Word is meant to be hidden. Well, there are certainly passages where God did attempt to uh, cover up his meaning. For example, in the parables, and we've seen that already. But for the most part, God intends his Word to be clearly understood. It's not some guessing game. And when Jesus makes the issue clear, what's the result here? The result is division. The people divide. They argue among themselves. Some claim that he's a good man, but most are claiming that he is a deceiver and deceiving the nation. And the principle we learn from this is that whenever the Word of God is proclaimed, there will always be division and discord. There will always be some, the few that accept, and the majority will reject. We even saw this in Jesus' own family, that none of his siblings accepted his claim to be the Messiah, at least not until after the resurrection. So faced with truth, the crowds in the temple divide. They argue. They're murmuring among themselves. Now, when John wrote this, I want you to think about this a minute. The Apostle John wrote this about 90 A.D. He wrote, he's been thinking about all these events for over 60 years. He's been ruminating on their significance and what was going on. And at the time that he writes, the church has been formed. Israel has already been destroyed by the Roman armies under Titus and has gone out under the fifth cycle of discipline. And the church is beginning to experience its first doctrinal confrontations and divisions. Congregations are splitting. People are wondering... Well, this is the gospel of peace. Why isn't there unity? Paul, didn't Paul talk about the unity of the faith? Well, there's very little unity. People are splitting over this doctrinal issue and that doctrinal issue. They can't even agree among themselves. So, how can this be the gospel of faith? And what John wants us to realize in all of this is that the truth divides people. The truth will always divide people. Christian unity is a unity, Paul says, of the faith. It's a unity of doctrine. That's a technical term there, not for faith in terms of trusting God, but it's a unity of doctrine. When you start trying to have unity at the expense of doctrine, then you're building unity on experience and on emotion. And that's the essence of ecumenicalism, is that people or churches and Christian groups try to get together and let's just water everything down and they even include watering down the gospel, and that happens. One, one example of this recently is that there's this group called Promise Keepers, and they've been very popular, and there are a lot of churches that get on the Promise Keeper bandwagon, and they go out, and they have these big pep rallies for fathers and families and husbands, and, and it's sort of the Christian answer to, to uh, so sort of the secular uh, male bonding thing. And in about a year ago or two years ago, what happened with Promise Keepers is they were getting a lot of uh, 
a lot of Roman Catholics who wanted to be involved, but they couldn't go along with the doctrinal statement. Because the doctrinal statement of promise keepers said that salvation was by faith alone in Christ. Alone modified faith. So they changed their doctrinal statement. They changed the doctrinal, doctrinal statement to read faith in Christ alone. Now faith didn't have to be alone anymore. It could be with works. And I read an article published in a Roman Catholic newsletter praising the change because it allowed Roman Catholics to now participate in promise keepers without, without having any reservations. And uh, the promise keepers also were, uh, added a Roman Catholic member to their board of directors. This is just one example of how this attempt at unity at the expense of doctrine destroys doctrine and it makes a sham out of Christianity. And people no longer promote the truth. But the truth always divides, and just because there is division does not mean there is carnality there. There, there is, but on the negative side. Division in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. Sometimes it is the right thing to do. So now we see that Jesus is not staying away from division, divisiveness, confrontation. He steps into the crowd, he raises his voice, and he shouts out, his message. He's willing to risk violence, risk arrest, in order to teach the Word of God. Now, when it starts off here in verse 33, it says, Jesus, therefore. Now, the word here in the Greek is the particle un, which is a particle of conclusion, which usually shows some sort of connection, a inference from the preceding uh, verses. So there is a conclusion here. Why does it say Jesus therefore said? Because of their negative volition. He is saying this in response to what he knows is going on behind the scenes. The negative volition. So here, Jesus is going to challenge the religious authorities with their own negative volition. See, up to this point, it's been pretty clear, but now John's going to use a little irony. He's going to intend show that what Jesus says has a different level of meaning. Up to this moment, the phrase, Him who sent me, is just nothing more than a reference to God the Father. Now, it is still a reference to God the Father. But what is what we have seen in studying the rabbis, the rabbis always cited various authorities. Well, we hold this position because Rabbi Akiba said this, Rabbi... Uh, Shammai said this, Rabbi Hillel said this. They're always citing their authorities. And so when Jesus says, for a little while longer, and he's anticipating the cross here, for a little while longer I'm with you, then I go to him who sent me. Him who sent me. That's my authority. My authority is God. He doesn't cite all of the rabbinical authorities like they want. He cites God. God is the final authority. So he is once again implying that he derives his authority from God and they don't. Another slap in the face, which begins to lead even more to the culmination in the cross. Of course, that doesn't happen for another three months. And then he says in verse 34, You shall seek me and shall not find me. Again, there's a double level of meaning here. They're going to seek him to arrest him. That's the primary level of, of reference here. You'll seek me and you won't find me. You won't be able to arrest me, in other words, until my time has come. But there's a second level of meaning. You will seek me and shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. In other words, Jesus is alluding to the fact, first of all, there's different levels here. One level is that he's alluding to the fact that he's going to be in heaven, and so they can't find him. But the other is that they really have negative volition, and because they have negative volition, no matter whether they hear him teach now in the flesh, in the incarnation, or later after the crucifixion when they hear the gospel, they will never be able to find him because they are, at the very root, negative to God at gospel hearing. They do not want to know the truth. They have rejected God at God consciousness, and they are rejecting Christ at gospel hearing. So Jesus says, You shall seek me. This is a future tense indicating at some time in the future you will seek me and you shall not find me. And then, very subtle, 
notice the shift. The first two verbs are future active indicatives, and then Jesus shifts to a present tense. He doesn't say, and where I will be, you cannot come. He says, where I am, you cannot come. And once again, he uses this pregnant Greek phrase to refer to himself. Ego, me." Ego is the first person singular pronoun for I. And me is the first person singular present active indicative of the verb meaning to be. And even of itself, because it's a first person singular, it means I am. But when you add the ego, the, the pronoun to it, which you don't have to, when you add that, it's for emphasis, and it means I am. And this is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew sacred tetragrammaton, YHWH, which is transliterated wrongly, Jehovah, but accurately is probably pronounced Yahweh, which is the personal name of God and the covenant name of God reflecting His covenant with Israel. So once again, Jesus, by His shift in tense here, is emphasizing that He is God. And of course, this continues to generate reaction among the Pharisees. Jesus, they, they say in verse 35, the Jews therefore said to one another, where does this man intend to go? See, as we've seen so often in the gospel, when people hear Jesus say something spiritually, they respond thinking he's talking about something physically, like the woman at the well, when he said, if you take the water I give you, you will never thirst again. She said, well, where is this water? She's looking around for the bucket. So we've seen this over and again where people are focused on this physical meaning and Jesus has a spiritual meaning. And so they say, where's this guy going to go that we can't find him? We're the Jews. We're everywhere. We're in the diaspora. We've got Jews in Rome and Greece and Parthia and Egypt. We'll find him. Where can he escape us? Where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? In other words, there's no place he can go to escape us. Verse 36. What is this statement that he said? And then John accurately quotes there accurately quotes them. See, here's the scenario. The Jews are listening to Jesus. They're going to say something. Now, normally, John just paraphrases what somebody says. But when they say this, John accurately, precisely quotes exactly what they said. And what they said is an accurate quote of what Jesus said. They understood the issue. They understood the words. They clearly heard it. They articulate. They repeat his words back to him. But they don't have a clue what they mean. If you're negative to God, you're not going to see the truth. Your mind will be clouded to the truth and you will not understand it. This is what Jesus was pointing up back in verse 17 when he says, If you are willing to do his will, you will know of the teaching." See, first of all, you have to be positive. If you're not positive, you will never understand the Word of God and you will never understand doctrine. And, and this is an illustration of that. They, they are negative. They don't understand what he is saying. They can even repeat it back to him, but they still don't have a clue as to what he is saying. Now we come to a very important issue. And that is the issue of response to the gospel. I want to go over this illustration because it will help you and encourage you, I hope, in evangelism. There are, we'll just say, three basic ways to present the gospel. There is a clear way to present the gospel where you very precisely and very accurately present the issues. Then there is a fuzzy way to present the gospel. And this is one you usually find with various campus organizations that somebody gets saved one week and they send them out knocking on doors the next week, passing out tracts on how to have a wonderful, happy and wonderful life and or four spiritual laws or something like that. And they end up saying that you need to invite Jesus into your heart and all of these fuzzy, incorrect ways of presenting the gospel. And then you just have a legalistic approach. Legalistic approach is the person who's always always adds something to the gospel. You have to believe and be baptized, or you have to believe 
and uh, join a church, or you have to believe and commit your life to Jesus. Now, you have two options. You have people that are positive and people that are negative. Now, in this case, you have somebody who gives a clear presentation of the gospel, and yet it's rejected. They're talking to somebody who is negative. They clearly understand it, and they say no. Then, in this case, you have somebody with a fuzzy presentation of the gospel, and this may be your own situation. You were positive at God consciousness, and you were positive at gospel hearing, and somehow you understood in the midst of all the confusing, incorrect, fuzzy vocabulary, you understood that the issue was trusting Christ alone for your salvation. And so you believed in Jesus as your Savior. You see, the issue is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to take whatever is said and He's going to make clear to you the truth. He's going to call out all the fuzzy stuff and all the wrong stuff and He's going to make the truth clear. Now this encourages you because sometimes, especially if you haven't witnessed much and you get in a situation, you get uh, uh, tongue tangled and you say the wrong thing or you don't get it out clear, but you always have to remember that the Holy Spirit is the sovereign executive of, of, of salvation and witnessing and evangelism and He is going to make the gospel clear. Now, this even happens in the midst of a legalistic situation. You can have a legalist present the gospel, and he says you have to believe and be saved, and the person doesn't, I mean, you have to believe and be baptized, and the person doesn't hear the be baptized, they just hear believe, because that's the Holy Spirit. Where I've been in churches where the pastor got in the pulpit and said you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. He didn't believe in substitutionary atonement. What he meant by believe was commit. And what he meant by being saved was that you would just live, live a good life. But that's not what he said. And people heard the truth, even though that's not what the man meant. So the Holy Spirit can use even fuzzy and legalistic presentations of the gospel to uh, make the gospel clear to a positive unbeliever so that they can have salvation. Now, Jesus, in this case, has made the gospel clear and they have rejected it. Now, verse 36 ends the events on the middle day of the feast. And then the scene shifts in verse 37 to the last day, the great day of the feast. And here we read, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. Once again, He appears suddenly. Once again, He cries out with a loud voice. And once again, everyone is going to hear the message. But if we are going to understand what Jesus is saying and why He is saying, we have to take a few moments to go back and understand the background and understand some biblical theology and biblical imagery, or this will go right past us and we'll end up with some sort of fuzzy, quasi-charismatic, emotional experience interpretation of this passage. And we don't want to do that. So let's get some background. Turn in the Old Testament to Leviticus 23. I'm going to give everybody a little opportunity to do what the kids downstairs do, and we're going to have a little sword drill time here just about and go through a lot of different passages of Scripture. Leviticus 23.33 provides the Old Testament Mosaic Law basis for the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, the Lord... This is the covenant name of God. Whenever you see it in all caps, it refers to the sacred tetragrammaton. Again, the Lord, that is Yahweh, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of the seventh, this seventh month is the Feast of Booths. Now, this isn't the seventh month in a Gregorian calendar. This is the seventh month in the Jewish ritual calendar, which is roughly comparable to our late November or early December. On the 15th of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to Yahweh. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. So the first day is like a Sabbath. It may or may not be the seventh day, but it's treated like a Sabbath. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord, to Yahweh. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. So the eighth day again is another high Sabbath. And present an offering by fire to Yahweh. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. 
These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to Yahweh, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and libations, each day's matter on its own day. So each day you had feasts. This went 24 hours a day. They were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a, this was a major party at the temple. And they celebrated in a remarkable manner. It went on around the clock. In fact, one of the rabbis wrote that you've never seen rejoicing until you've seen the kind of rejoicing that goes on in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. They had a great time. And we're going to have to look at that because it builds the scenario for what Jesus is going to say. Verse 39. On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. Now this tells us the agricultural background. It's a fall harvest festival to celebrate that they have brought in the harvest. God has provided for them through the winter. And it also anticipates and looks forward to the spring, and there is prayer for rain. Remember, in the Mosaic Law, God said, If you're obeying me, I will bless you, and there will be prosperity. The crops will be abundant, and you will never have need or never have want. But if you're disobedient, you will, there will be uh, economic uh, loss, there will be famine, there will be drought, and you will not have uh, abundant crops. So at the time of the fall festival, look forward to the coming year and anticipated God's future provision. Verse 40, Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees. These were palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. Notice what we have here. Palm trees and willows. And you built a little shelter out in front of your house, and then you would go live in that for a week. Verse 42 says, You shall live in these booths for seven days. All the native-born in Israel shall live in booths. So, it is a memorial. It's a memorial that looks back on what happened when they came out of Egypt, much like our Lord's table is. Verse 43, So that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, it's a reminder of God's saving grace at the Exodus. Now, it's a harvest festival. It also was to portray the final great harvest of history, which would occur at the end of the tribulation. For that purpose, it has a millennial anticipation, a messianic anticipation, looking forward to the Lord coming in his kingdom. And we see this in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. Now, we looked at that last week. And in Zechariah 14:16, it's a millennial passage, and it states, Then it will come about, that is, in the millennium, that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, after the second advent, and when He comes back to fulfill all of the covenants to Israel, and He is fulfilling the Davidic covenant as the one who sits on David's throne in Jerusalem. They will go up, all the nations will go up year to year to worship the King, Yahweh of the armies, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, we call it Feast of Tabernacles, but Jews call it Sukkot, S-U-C-C-O-T-H. And everyone, including the Gentiles, will celebrate Sukkot. So it was a time of thanksgiving for the past crop, but it also anticipates the next crop, and it includes within it a prayer for rain and for abundance in the coming year. The point of all this is that people who do not have gratitude for past blessings will not get future blessings. That's the subtext. That's what God wants everybody to understand here. If you're not grateful for what I've done for you in the past, then I'm not going to provide for you in the future. And once again, even in the Old Testament, we see that gratitude is a barometer of our spiritual growth. Now listen to what we add to this, or we can find out about this from the Mishnah. See, the Jews added a number of different elements to the Feast of Sukkot and, uh, over the years. And these additions are going to be utilized by the Lord in this passage to demonstrate a very crucial point of truth that has tremendous application for all of us. In Mishnah 
3, 9 in the section on the Sukkot, it says, And at what point did they shake the lulub? Now, the lulub, that's the, uh, refers to the palm branches. So there's this great celebration, great parade. Everybody's coming in and they're singing psalms. And they're going to start the day and they're going to wave the palm branches. And they're going to sing from the Hallel Psalms. These are the psalms, the praise psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. And the answer is that at, at O oh, give thanks unto the Lord. See, they didn't number the psalms. We have them numbered. They didn't have them numbered. They referred to them by titles. And the title of Psalm 118 was, O oh, give thanks unto the Lord. This is the same thing when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's referring to Psalm 22, and he quotes the whole psalm. He doesn't just say that. That's a title for the psalm. And John just uses shorthand to give us that one verse, but that refers to the whole psalm. So this is what they do. They cite, at O give thanks unto the Lord, as they're citing Psalm 118, beginning and end. And at that point, they wave the branches. Then when they get down to verse 25, which says, Save now, we beseech thee, O Lord. Uh, that's... The, those who follow Hillel will wave the branches again. So once I, I just want you to see this argumentation going on in the Mishnah. Some will start at, oh, give thanks, and then the school of Hillel comes in when they say, save now. And the house of Shammai, another rabbi, and the house of Shammai says also, at, oh, Lord, we beseech thee, send now prosperity. In other words, at another point, now the followers of Shammai will wave the branches a third time. So there's, they waved the lula, they sang from Psalm 118, and they worshipped the Lord. Now, in Sukkah 4.2 we read, the lulub is for seven days. So they do this every day of the festival. And they use not only the palm branches, but also the, the willow branch. And 4.5 we read, the religious requirement of the willow branch. What is that? There was a place below Jerusalem called Mosa. This was a small village down below the, the uh, Jerusalem set up high, and it's down below the walls. People go down there, and they would gather young willow branches along the brook. They come, and they throw them along the sides of the altar with their heads bent over the altar. They blew on the shofar, a sustained, a quavering, and a sustained note. Okay, here's the scenario. It's the, it, Every single day, they partied all night long. They had a big feast, the tavern, temples filled, and they're drinking wine. They're having a tremendous celebration, a banquet before the Lord. They go all night long. As soon as the sun comes up, the priest is up on the wall, and as soon as they see the, the dawn come, they blow three blasts on the shofar, a long note, a short note, and a long note. And everybody stops, and they form up in this great procession, and they go outside the temple, outside the walls, outside the walls of Jerusalem, down into the valley, and they cut willow branches, and then they turn around and they come back up. And they do this every single day. And then there are various sacrifices and offerings and more singing of psalms all through the day. And this goes on day after day throughout the eight days of the festival. Then we read in Sukkah 4.8 that the Hallel Psalms... And the rejoicing are for eight days. Explain that. This rule teaches that a person is obligated for the Hallel Psalms, for the rejoicing, and for the honoring of the festival day, on the last festival day of the festival, just as he is on all the others. In other words, you've got to be there all day. So people were exhausted. There's, uh, they have the, the major meals, and they have this, this celebration before God. Now, on the last day, they do something a little different. They go out and they go down to the pool of Siloam following the priest. And all along the way, there's, there's these various blasts on the chauffeur, on the ram's horn. And they come down to the pool of Siloam. And when they reach there, at, and they go out by the water gate, and when they reach there, they turn back to face the temple. And they say, our fathers who stood on this place stood with the ba- their backs toward the temple and their faces toward the east, and they prostrated themselves eastward to the sun. But as for us, our eyes are turned toward the Lord. So this is what happens that morning. This last great day, they walk down to the pool of Siloam, and they turn around and they face the temple. Now, who's in the temple? The Lord Jesus Christ. And they say... They cite this, and they say, our eyes are turned to the Lord. Then the priests go down, and they have a golden pitcher... 
and they fill the golden pitcher up with water, and then the whole crowd turns around and they follow the priest back up the hill and back into the temple. And when they come into the temple, the priest is going to come in and they've erected this altar, and on the altar there are two bowls. One is for wine and one is for water, and they have a tube that goes from the bowl down through the altar and down into the earth. And they're going to pour this water out into the bowls, and the water will drain down into the earth. What is this a symbol of? It's a symbolic, rep- it's a representation of their prayer for rain for the coming year, so that the earth will be fruitful and they will have abundant crops. So they visualize their prayer through this ritual of bringing the water and pouring the water libation out on the altar. So this is the background. This is what's going on. And just at that time, and incidentally, one of the, one of the writers says the flute is played, so there's music, they have the band there. They, the flute is playing is for five or six days, not on the two Sabbaths. This is, refers to the flute playing on Beit HaShobah, which overrides the restrictions of neither the Sabbath nor of a festival day. So on the first and last day, there's no flute playing. And the rabbi says, anyone who has not seen... The Beit Hashubah in his life has never seen rejoicing. In other words... You may have been to some parties in your life, but you've never been to a party like they had during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, it's just at this point. The procession has come back. The people are lined up and they've seen all this typology all week long. The, the Hallel Psalms, they've been blasting on the, on the ram's horn. They've been carrying out the sacrifices. All of this points to the work of Jesus Christ. And at this point, they come out and they pour out the water and Jesus stands up on the wall and this is where He announces, If any man is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. See, the point is not the thirst of the earth. The earth is if you really want productivity, if you really want blessing, if you're really thirsty, which is also a metaphor for positive volition, If you're really thirsty, you come to me and drink. The reason he uses a metaphor of thirst and drink is because anybody can do it. Anybody can come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. It's not restricted to culture, background, sex, uh, education, anything else. Anybody can exercise positive volition and anybody can believe just as anyone can drink. And Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I am the source of your prosperity. So Jesus makes this profound announcement, and that makes us think, how can anybody claim that Jesus was just a good man? That Jesus was just a religious innovator? Because Jesus demonstrates incredible audacity that in the midst of this ceremony, in the midst of all of this ritual, Jesus stands up and claims by His very actions to be the one that all of this pictures. He claims to be the one that can fulfill all of the typology. He claims, in a word, to be God. He says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. And then in verse 38 He says, just so you understand the metaphor correctly, see, drinking is an illustration, but the command is to believe. He makes it clear. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now, what does this mean? What is the significance of this? Well, John tells us in verse 39, but there's more to it than what John tells us. John tells us, and I'll give you the hint, he says, but this he spoke of the Spirit. So he's anticipating and announcing the coming of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the church. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Future tense. He hadn't come yet. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now there's a passage that destroys covenant theology. Makes it clear that the Holy Spirit was not given at all prior to Jesus' ascension. 
that in the Old Testament you just had a temporary endowment, but it had nothing to do with the filling, the baptism, the filling, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church age. But let's go back and look at this wonderful imagery that Jesus uses here. He says, From His innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now, if we're going to understand this, we have to pick up on some imagery that goes throughout the Scriptures. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. I'm going to point out a couple of things here that you may not have noticed before. In verse 8, we read, And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. Now, there are two separate geographical distinctions made in that verse. There is a garden, which is to be the uh, place where the man and the woman lived. And there is a larger, a more significant geographical location, Eden. Eden is the habitation of God. Now, what is the word that we use for a place that God inhabits? The word that we use is the word temple. Eden is the temple of God. Now that we have our geography straight, this is antediluvian geography. This is before the flood, so what the earth looked like has nothing to do with what the earth looked like today. Look at verse 10. Now a river flowed not out of the Garden of Eden. A river flowed out of Eden, out of the temple of God. There is a river that flows out of the temple. And this river then subdivides into four. Now there's no place on earth with this kind of river system today. Just another example of how the earth before the flood was really different. had a different set of laws. And and if you and I were transported back there, we wouldn't recognize planet earth. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. So we see here that the pristine earth was not watered by rain, according to Genesis 2.6, but by a mist that rose up from the earth and from this river system that God established. The name of the first river is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The Bedelium and the Onyx Stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. Now, this isn't the land of Cush later. It was These are all antediluvian, pre-flood designations. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, What happened was that after the flood, when people landed, they renamed rivers and other geographical features after the names they they were familiar with. Just as when people came over to North America from England, they named places Boston and New York and names that were familiar to them from the old country. So all of this was destroyed before, I mean, by the flood. Now, what happens after the fall is that man is excluded from this river. And he's excluded from the garden. See, the original sign of salvation is not the cross, but the fruit tree, the tree of life. And the production of the tree of life came from the water. Because the water was converted into the production of the fruit, which became eternal life. As they ate the fruit, they would live forever. So the water then becomes a symbol for eternal salvation. Now, let's turn from there to Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel chapter 47 describes the millennial temple. Ezekiel 47 describes the millennial temple and we'll begin in verse 1. We'll notice that there is something in the original creation that is also present here. Then he brought me back to the door of the house. The house here is the term for the house of God, the temple. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. 
And he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. So what we see in the millennium, during the thousand-year reign of Christ in Jerusalem, there will be a river flowing out from the center of the temple. Now, let's push this a little further and go to... uh, Well, let's look down a couple of verses before we leave here. Down to 47.6. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. That was a desert region, at least in our time it's a desert region, the south of Israel. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. Notice the rejuvenating power of the river that flows out of the temple. It turns the death of salt water into fresh water. Verse 9, And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. So the river gives life. Now, let's turn to the end of your Bible to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. We are now beyond the millennial kingdom into the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Notice the analogy, the mirror reflection from Genesis 1. Genesis 1-3. through Either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants, bondservants shall serve Him. And then skip down to verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Now, in all of these passages, we see that there is a temple, and from the temple flows a river. Now, we have a creation temple, we have a millennial temple, and we have a new heaven and new earth temple. Well, what do we have now? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us that in this age, there is going to be a living temple, the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.20 says, Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So what we have in this age is a temple made without hands. It is the body of Christ. And now let's go back to our passage in John and see what Jesus is saying. Now that we understand the biblical metaphor, let's see the impact of what Jesus is saying says, if you believe in me, if you come to me and drink from this water, of living water, that is without cost, from his innermost being, why? Because it's prophecy. Jesus is prophesying the coming church age, and that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a temple created by God the Holy Spirit, and out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You will be a source of life to those around you. Blessing by association that has it at its peak, bringing others to a knowledge of Jesus Christ by explaining the Gospel to them. So Jesus is saying there will be, as a result of this future ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the believer who is the temple of God in this age will be the source of blessing and prosperity 
for the age. And then he concludes by saying, but John just tells us, this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given. And this implies the uniqueness of this age, which we'll come back to next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the way You have provided our salvation, the way You illustrate these important truths through various images that go from the beginning to the end of Scripture, and how much we can learn from exploring these images. That salvation is a free gift. That you have clearly provided it for us. And from accepting this gift, all of our needs are satisfied. And that we have eternal life. And that there is no cost to salvation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal destiny, who is unclear how to have eternal life, that the Holy Spirit would make that clear to them. That all they need do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be saved. They just drink of the waters that are without cost. As Jesus said, it means to believe in Him, to accept Him as their Savior because He died on the cross to pay the penalty for all their sins. Now, Father, we pray that we would be encouraged and challenged by these things and realize what a tremendous privilege we now have in this church age because we are temples of the living God And out of us flow rivers of living water. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.